Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and that includes your story. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Jeremy Saucier is the Assistant Vice President for Interpretation and Electronic Games, and he's also the editor of the American Journal of Play at the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Today, he gives us the exciting history of of an American icon, an American original, the pinball machine. I would say pinball is an American icon. It traces its roots back to a French parlor table game called Bagatelle. Sometimes it would be in a form that looks similar to a, a pool table. The player would get to hit a ball, often with something that resembled a cue stick that we would use today in pool. Initially, the idea was to avoid pins. There'd be these little wooden pins and a lot, a lot of different versions of the game. And eventually that evolved into where you actually had fixed pins and scoring holes. The kind of link that, you know, if you were to say a missing link between Bagatelle and pinball happens in the late 19th century with an English immigrant to America, Montague Redgrave. He patents in 1871 what he called improvements in Bagatelle. And that introduced the spring-loaded ball shooter, what today we would refer to as the plunger. The idea of also adding sound effects or sound to the game by putting bells on the play field. The first pinball machines made this type of game 
into a coin operated machine. It took that play field and it essentially monetized it, right? It placed it in a, a wooden case. It put a piece of glass over the play field to separate the player from the game. As you think of ramps and flippers and all those things, that's starting in the 40s and 50s. The first game that introduces the, the idea of really like, let's have flippers to actually control and to bat the balls around is 1947. This game, Humpty Dumpty, had six flippers and they were on each side of the play field. This changes pinball, right? It makes it much more interactive. And that becomes particularly important to the kind of public debates that are gonna happen about pinball. The best example of this in the, the early 1940s is in New York City, Mayor LaGuardia bans pinball, actually does prohibition style raids to kind of root out pinball. They had been associated and in some case used in gambling, in essentially money laundering. I mean, you have these bands in Los Angeles, you have them in Ohio, I mean, they're all over the country. There's all these associations and all these anxieties around what are children doing with their time? The stories about kids stealing you know, lunch money or stealing money from their parents to go to play pinball and it being a gateway to organized crime. There's a pinball moral panic. But you start to see that kind of break up in the 1970s. There's an important event that happens with the New York City Council in 1976 with a, a major pinball player at the time, Roger Sharp. In 76, Sharp and a number of, of folks who are really in support of overturning that ban go before the New York City Council. And in this sort of dramatic, you know, Babe Ruth calling his shot moment, he plays a pinball game in a way that shows the counselors that Pinball is actually a game of skill. He can tell them, hey, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm gonna show you this is how you can play pinball and affect what's happening on the play field. It was overturned with a vote of about 30 to six, 30 to five, 30 to six. It's probably also worth mentioning that in the 1970s, pinball was extremely popular. New York City also saw the fact that, hey, this is going to be a revenue generator, right? Because we can license and register all these machines and make money off of them. But what's also happening is the introduction of video games. Video games were making a tremendous amount of money, particularly in the late 70s and early 80s when there was an arcade craze. And so there was a tremendous amount of effort being made by the burgeoning video game industry to kind of inject respectability into the coin-op industry as a whole. And so they helped to legitimize pinball, but they're also seeing that pinball is in some ways pushed out of the arcade. A lot of what it becomes, I think, has to do with the influence of video games. You see video game themed pinball games going into arcades. There's a Defender pinball machine. There's a Space Invaders pinball machine. What you also see is them trying to incorporate the form and some of the conventions of video games into pinball games. There's a game called Hyperball. It took sort of mini pinballs. You had a trigger and you're just firing balls at these targets on the play field. It was difficult to understand. You were spelling out words. You were also trying to stop these bolts of lightning from coming down and, and hitting your base. And it just didn't work you had that level of influence where it was really directly affecting the games. And then the other piece, I think, is that you now have these development teams that are led by designers, but you've got engineers, animators. It's a completely multi-sensory experience. It's really bringing people into these immersive spaces in this really beautiful marriage of technology, of art, of storytelling and play that really comes together and I think kind of immerses you in what today is pinball. And a great job by Chrissy, our intrepid intern, and a special thanks to Jeremy Saucier, who's the Assistant Vice President for Interpretation and Electronic Games 
and editor of the American Journal of Play at the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Again, the story of the pinball here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the stories we tell about this great country, and especially the stories of America's rich past, know that all of our stories about American history, from war to innovation, culture, and faith, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a place where students study all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that are good in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. This is Our American Stories, and our next one comes from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here on Our American Stories. In 1984, during a period of Cold War tension, a Soviet submarine collided with a United States aircraft carrier. Here's the History Guy with the story of the USS Kitty Hawk collision. It was March 21st, 1984, and the supercarrier USS Kitty Hawk was in the Sea of Japan. Commissioned in April 1961, Kitty Hawk was the first of a class of three so-called supercarriers, upgraded versions of the previous Forrestal class. Capable of carrying 85 aircraft and with a crew complement of 5,624 officers and men, the Kitty Hawk had served throughout the Vietnam War and continued serving in the Western Pacific. She had been sent to the Sea of Japan in March to participate in Team Spirit exercises. Team Spirit was a joint exercise with the United States and the Republic of Korea, held annually from 1976 to 1993. The exercise was designed to evaluate and improve the interoperability of the ROK and U.S. forces. The operation, so close to the Soviet Far East, attracted the attention of the Soviet military. Kitty Hawk reported that over the course of the exercise, the carrier and its escorts came in contact with 43 Soviet aircraft, six Soviet surface elements, and one Soviet submarine. The submarine was the Victor-class submarine K-314. Designated Project 671 or Scorpion Fish by the Soviet Navy and given the NATO designation Victor-1, the Victor-class was a series of nuclear-powered attack submarines designed to counter enemy vessels, especially American nuclear attack submarines. Although its exact armament at the time is still classified, the submarine was likely armed with both torpedoes and missiles, including SSN-15 Starfish nuclear-armed anti-submarine missiles. The Kitty Hawk was aware there was being shadowed by the submarine since it had left the South Korean port of Pusan on March 19th. Such behavior was not uncommon, as an officer aboard Kitty Hawk explained to the New York Times. They play cat and mouse with us all the time. As part of their tracking, the U.S. had simulated destroying the submarine that has had units in a position where they could have destroyed the submarine in a combat situation 15 times. A former aviator who piloted a P-3B Orion anti-submarine and surveillance aircraft explained, Chasing Ivan was great fun. Serious business, but nevertheless great fun. The only problem was that when you caught Ivan, you had to let him go. On the night of March 21st, the Kitty Hawk was leaving the Sea of Japan, heading south to the Yellow Sea. As they deployed, the Kitty Hawk's escorts moved away, some 2.5 miles distant. This, in essence, left the Kitty Hawk blind to the location of the K-314. The carrier did not have its own sonar equipment, but instead relied on its escort vessels and aircraft to track the submarine. If it were a wartime situation, the submarine would never have gotten within the battle group, Pentagon spokesman Michael Birch explained in a UPI report. In peacetime, it's not required that the Navy keep 24-hour watch on Soviet submarines. Birch continued, These were peacetime conditions. It's not unusual to lose contact. Still, the pilot of the P-3B Orion explained that he and his crew knew that the submarine was in the area of the carrier, and in fact speculated that the submarine was attempting a maneuver where it tries to hide underneath the carrier to mask the submarine's sound, a technique which the pilot said generally doesn't work. But the K-314 wasn't trying to hide. Instead, the submarine, under the command of Captain Vladimir Evsinko, had lost track of the Kitty Hawk. The most likely reason was simply the rough seas. An expert quoted in the Washington Post commented that it is a very confusing world beneath the surface, and observed that the Sea of Japan, which is relatively shallow and is teeming with commercial and military ships, 
is one of the noisiest in the world, confusing the sonar that submarines use to track other ships. There is an additional problem as well, as sonar, which tracks sound, leaves a notorious blind spot in the baffles behind a submarine, where the noise of its own screws makes it impossible to detect other ships across an approximately 60-degree arc. Some sailors suggest that either the Kitty Hawk had made an abrupt course change or was engaging in a deceptive lighting exercise, so the ship would change its running lighting configuration to appear like the guided missile cruiser USS Long Beach. While such operations would have been intended to confuse surface ships, it may also have confused the K-314. In any case, having lost his target, Captain Ifsinko decided to bring the K-314 to periscope depth. When he looked through the periscope, he was stunned to see that he and the Kitty Hawk were on a collision course. He immediately ordered the submarine to dive, but by then, it was already too late. At approximately 10 p.m., some 150 miles off the coast of Korea, in rough seas and pitch black night, the nuclear-powered and armed Soviet submarine K-314 collided with the nuclear-armed carrier USS Kitty Hawk. Captain Rogers was on the bridge at the time, monitoring one of the ship's radars. He said, We felt a sudden shudder, a very violent shudder. The radar was designed to detect surface contacts and would have not have seen the still-submerged submarine. There was no indication that anyone on the Kitty Hawk saw the submarine in the moments before the collision, and there likely wouldn't have been time to make a response if they had. A sailor on the flight deck felt the, the shudder too, explaining, That is something you normally don't feel on a carrier. A sailor in the mess room said, His tray jumped up four inches. Others, however, seemed to barely notice, writing the shudder off as rough seas. One sailor described acting shipmates in a TV lounge if they felt something, and they insisted that he was crazy. On the P-3 Orion, they could hear a great scraping noise through their hydrophones. Sailors on the Kitty Hawk said the scraping noise lasted five to eight minutes as the submarine dragged along the keel. Evsinko was quoted on the website Russia Beyond, recalling that the first thought was that the conning tower had been destroyed and the submarine's body was cut to pieces. They confirmed that the periscope and antennas were still working when they felt a second strike on the starboard side. The collision could have been much worse. It was a glancing blow off the right side of Kitty Hawk's bow. The second strike that Evsinko felt was when the submarine's propeller struck the hull of the Kitty Hawk, breaking off a piece that was left in the Kitty Hawk's bow. The submarine was forced to surface. The Kitty Hawk immediately launched a pair of SH-3 Sea King helicopters to render assistance. The submarine appeared to have a dent or crease between its stern and sail reported moving at a slow five knots towards the Soviet naval base at Vladivostok, while the guided missile cruiser, Petropavlovsk, steamed apparently to the submarine's assistance. The submarine did not answer the Kitty Hawk's offers of assistance, nor did it request any, and the Soviet government refused to comment. News reports at the time said that the Kitty Hawk detected no nuclear leak from the submarine, and that President Reagan was apprised of the situation. The Kitty Hawk remained for approximately two hours in order to be available in case it needed to render assistance but then continued on its course. Other U.S. Navy ships remained in the area. While the initial reports were that the Kitty Hawk had taken only superficial damage, within a day the Navy reported that the carrier was taking on water. The collision had ruptured a fuel tank storing aircraft fuel, which was then becoming contaminated with seawater. The crew had to pump the fuel from the tank. The Kitty Hawk had a hole in the bow and a gash from the submarine's propeller below the waterline. Divers the next day brought up a piece of the propeller that had been lodged in the hull, and the crew had it mounted in a hangar. The Navy described the damage as minor, saying that it could be repaired at sea and was not significant enough to affect normal operations. Although crew members aboard Kitty Hawk speculated that there was a significant risk for the crew of the submarine after being rolled over in a collision, the Russian Navy has never provided information on the extent of the damage to the K-314. Several members of the Kitty Hawk and other U.S. ships' crews noted seeing welding sparks as members of the K-314 crew engaged in apparent repairs. The K-314 was not able to return to base under its own power and was eventually met by a seagoing tug. The report in Russia Beyond quotes Captain Evsinko saying that there was no loss of life aboard the submarine. The general feeling aboard the Kitty Hawk was that the submarine had taken more damage than the carrier, prompting jokes about the Kitty Hawk being the first anti-submarine carrier weapon. The crew painted a red submarine on the ship's island near the bridge to mark their victory, but the Navy later made them remove it. The Kitty Hawk underwent repairs at Subic Bay Naval Base in the Philippines, which crew members described as filling the damaged voids with concrete. During the repairs, it was discovered that some of the submarine's specialized outer coating had scraped off onto Kitty Hawk, could be analyzed, allowing the USA minor intelligence coup. 
The USS Kitty Hawk continued to serve clear into the next century and wasn't decommissioned until 2009 after an impressive nearly 49 years service in the United States Navy. She was the last oil-fired U.S. carrier to serve. Sometimes the story about what did not happen is as interesting as the story that what did. The fact that an event was, well, far less catastrophic than it might have been is history that deserves to be remembered. Indeed, and you're listening to The History Guy. If you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. A great story, The History Guy's story, the day a Soviet nuclear attack submarine rammed an American aircraft carrier, here on Our American Story. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. 
This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my from this idea of what do, is that? Is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know. Oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us courtesy of Rick Mixter, a shipwreck researcher and diver who's explored over 130 shipwrecks one of which is the subject of this story on the most famous shipwreck on the Great Lakes. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story. When we think of the word lake, we often think of a calm, placid, and small body of water. But the Great Lakes are anything but that. People underestimate them, you know, it literally... They think they're ponds. They think that they're, you know, they're, they're much smaller than the ocean. And the truth is that the Great Lakes span over a thousand miles. You know, Lake Superior is immense. And unfortunately, it has these jagged shoals that, uh, unlike the ocean, it, it's confined. So these shoals bounce waves back and forth. And these confused waves on the Great Lakes tend to uh, really mess with ships and, and make it very difficult to navigate in a storm. And the results of these confused seas have often been deadly. There's a huge argument on how many shipwrecks are on the Great Lakes because it's really hard to judge. This Most of the time we would put it to, you know, insurance settlements. Let's look at Lloyd's of London or other places that paid out, but we don't know if they were recovered. If you said on the bottom, most people would probably throw out a number between 6,000 and 10,000 shipwrecks that are still on the bottom. But out of all these shipwrecks, there's one that has been etched into the collective consciousness of the people of the Great Lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald. And there's a reason for that. Fitzgerald is famous for two words, Gordon Lightfoot. (laughs) It's literally a a wreck that I think would have been forgotten if not for a Canadian songwriter who took the story and turned it into a seven and a half minute song that went to number two on the charts. And once that happened, it became enamored not only by the people of the Great Lakes, it became their song, um, played every November. Every time you turn on the radio, somebody plays it at that time because of the gales of November and to remember the crew. Nobody argues that it's not Gordon Lightfoot. It is the largest shipwreck on the Great Lakes by a couple hundred feet. The Fitzgerald was 729 feet long and uh, lost with all hands, which was part of the mystery, I think, that captivated even Gordon Lightfoot, and uh, that's why it kind of became a story. How in 1975 could you have a 700-foot freighter with 29 men completely vanish? Fitzgerald was one of the last of the ships built in Michigan, which we used to have an amazing shipbuilding uh, prowess. We were number one on the Great Lakes for years, just a massive ship. I mean, it was the flagship for Columbia Transportation. So when it was launched, not only was she the biggest, but she was well-appointed. She had the the best skipper, according to Columbia, uh, the best cook, because they would um, entertain many of the steel companies like National Steel's president or, you know, bigwigs would come on board, bring their family along, and, uh, you know, it would have inside J.L. Hudson Company, the, the famous Hudson store, had all of the appointments inside, so your beds, all of the furniture, which had to be custom cut to fit the canner of the uh, floor of the Fitzgerald, which was you know, slightly rounded. They had to cut the legs of the bed to fit correctly. So it, it was the flagship. It was the ship that everybody wanted to, to be assigned to, and it was certainly the ship that gave out many rides to people. It was also fast. They called it the Toledo Express because it made that run so quickly. And for the next 17 years, the Edmund Fitzgerald would continue to make that trip from Superior, Wisconsin to Detroit, laden with iron ore. And there was no reason to expect that on November 9, 1975, her trip under the command of Captain Ernest McSorley would go any differently. 
it, it was a Sunday, and it was in Superior, Wisconsin, on a beautiful day. And Jack McCarthy, the first mate, would be in charge of telling the guys, you know, all the loading, make sure that the ship was loaded evenly, in which they would go underneath a gravity-fed dock, and it would actually spill these round taconite pellets into the, the cargo hold, which they took 26,000 tons. This is where Gordon Lightfoot was, was wrong on a couple of accounts in his song. He said uh, fully loaded for Cleveland, but it wasn't fully loaded. It was less than uh, two-thirds loaded because she was actually going to River Rouge the, near the area to the Zug Island. And in order to get into that slip, she couldn't carry all of her cargo because she would hit bottom in the Detroit River. So not fully loaded, not going to Cleveland, actually going into the Detroit area with a, a load of iron ore that would eventually become automobiles. And they take off into a beautiful day. And as they do, McSorley in the pilot house actually sees that a big storm is coming up. He's got a, a radio that he can get reports through, and he's a weather ship. So he takes his observations and adds them to the weather reports to help forecasters try to develop where the storm's going to go. And it's quickly ascertained that, that he's going to get a storm that's going to come right through from Oklahoma all the way up to Marquette. And so he starts to calculate how long that would take and, and uses the forecast that he's getting, given as well and has to determine what he's going to do. But McSorley was a well-seasoned captain, and the coming storm likely didn't phase him too much, despite some of the reservations he may have had on the ship. McSorley had been a, a, a skipper that had been on the Great Lakes for years and years and worked his way up to the Edmund Fitzgerald. He was very stern from the people that I talked to, um, very matter-of-fact guy. As we talked uh, to a, a third mate in my documentary called The Fitzgerald Investigations, he remembered going through uh, Lake Superior storm with just 10-foot waves where the Fitzgerald would flex so crazily, unlike any ship he had been on. And he looked at McSorley and he said, uh, man, it, it, should it be bending like this? And McSorley said, um, sometimes it scares me. So literally he knew that this ship was was different than other ships he knew that it, it would um, flex in these storms but because as a part-time job he did hull inspection he was very well versed in the strength of these ships and he unfortunately pushed the Fitzgerald way beyond its means as I did the investigation documentary I found the Coast Guard looked into it they looked at 10 years at the Sioux Locks the worst storms that ever happened up until 1975 and the one ship that kept pushing every storm and made it through the locks during those gales was the Edmund Fitzgerald. So he was a rough weather skipper. He pushed the heck out of the ship and it eventually broke because of it. So the Fitzgerald pushed forward and soon they would get company to ride out the storm with in the form of the Arthur M. Anderson, another Laker captained by Bernie Cooper. And Cooper also is a, you know, these guys are experienced meteorologists. They have to be. Their lives depend on it. And they start to, to figure out when the storm will come and what they're going to do. As they pass Isle Royal, they've got a place that they can hide there from these northwest winds that are starting to build. They continue going, but they take the northern route. The northern route goes closer to Canada. Uh, jokingly, some of the sailors call that the scenic route because otherwise you might not ever see land. As you go around the Keweenaw would be the last spot as you make that long haul past Marquette and make your way to the Sioux Locks and uh, Whitefish Bay. But uh, as they're going up, they, they go all the way past Otterhead in a second spot that they could throw out their anchor because it's so close to the Canadian shore, the waves can't build there. So you're pretty safe, you could wait it out. But they didn't, they decided they were gonna make it for Whitefish Bay. They thought that the storm would take an extra hour to get to them and they were wrong. As they got past uh, Caribou, it was the worst the storm could be, and they were in the absolute worst place they should be on Lake Superior, where those winds now could build the entire length of the lake and crash into the ship, and crash into them in the stern and on their starboard side. So if they had any problems at all, they were gonna get into real trouble there, and that's what happened to Fitzgerald. And you're listening to Rick Mixter tell the story of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, as he put it. How in 1975 could you have a 729-foot freighter with 29 men completely vanish? The answer to that question, you'll hear it after these messages here 
on Our American Story. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast. And this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
And we continue with our American stories and our story of the Edmund Fitzgerald. When we last left off, Captain McSorley and his crew were battling the brutal storm on Lake Superior alongside another ship, the Arthur M. Anderson. Here's Rick Mixter with the rest of the story. As the Fitz is going past Caribou, it realizes it has some kind of problem. They looked down the deck and they could see that at least one of their vents was missing. These look like mushrooms that are on the deck. And they're very large and they're used to equalize the pressure below decks. But of course, Fitz has two-thirds of a cargo in there. Well, as he noticed that one of those is missing, he also uh, finds out from his uh, engineers that he's taking on water. So they're running their pumps to try to keep that water out. He also mentioned something really unique. He says our fence rail is down, and that has been interpreted in a couple different ways. The fence rail could be the guide rails that are on the side of the ship, that perhaps some piece of debris came on, smashed its vent off, and also damaged that part of the rail. So he's radioing back and forth to the Anderson that he's got these problems, and then all of a sudden mentions his radars are out, and he was worried because the... uh, McSorley had noticed that out of Whitefish Bay there were several saltwater ships and including a, a big freighter called the William Clay Ford um, and another one that were trying to get out of Whitefish Bay and he worried he'd get into a collision situation in the blinding snow that was happening. So he asked the Anderson to keep an eye out for them because his radars were out. So he's going blindly into this storm. The uh, Anderson is now trying to close the distance because the Fitzgerald being a faster boat was a mile or several miles ahead of them. The last broadcast came from Morgan Clark, the first mate on board the Anderson, who asked the Fitzgerald, how are you making out with your problems? And the Fitzgerald McSorley answered back, we are holding our own. And uh, unfortunately in a blinding snow squall, the uh, Fitzgerald disappears. It disappears from radar because the, uh, the, the blinding snow also blinded the radar out. When it finally clears, Anderson can't see the Fitzgerald, and now their job is trying to notify the Coast Guard that a 729-foot freighter is missing. Uh, the last time that you uh, talked to him, at what time that was, really? I asked him how he was making out with his problem. Uh, he said he lost those vents and he had a lift, and he said he was holding his own. Uh, the last time I talked with him, he said he was holding his own, and uh, that's the last time I uh, lost contact after that. Nobody wanted to believe that the Fitzgerald was gone, especially the Coast Guard. As, and we're very lucky that um, immediately the Coast Guard started recording all of these conversations. So we actually have the conversations as the, the Cooper is trying to tell the Coast Guard that they have um, missed the Fitzgerald. So here the Anderson is now making the safety of Whitefish Bay after uh, now 29 guys have been lost, a massive steel modern freighter has been lost to the storm and they call the Coast Guard who tells them we don't have a ship that can go out there. So the Coast Guard has to convince the captain of the Anderson that just witnessed this freighter sinking to turn around, come out of the safety of Whitefish Bay and go back into that killer storm. And he definitely did not want to do that. Right from the the radio broadcast, we hear Cooper say, you know, there's going to be two of us on the bottom. You know, he really believed going back out there was was going to be, you know, a a bad mistake. But he knew he was the only choice, so they went back out there. You know, at that time, it was 60-mile-an-hour winds. It was going to take him two hours to go 17 miles with those intense winds that blowing right against them. And I don't think they believed that anybody would survive it. You know, with big 30-foot waves and water temperatures that were just above freezing, there really wasn't much chance. And unfortunately, it was a futile attempt. But I think that that was the spirit of the lakes. You do what you can. Uh, First, make sure your crew is going to survive it. And then, you know, if you can safely do it, you go out there and make the rescue. And, And he did, to the truest tradition of sailors, you know, try to find those guys. But unfortunately, you know, as we know, nobody survived and no bodies were found. Then came the task of actually finding the final resting place of the Fitzgerald on the bottom of Lake Superior. It didn't take them very long, so they used this robot called the Curve 3 to um, not only find it, but to secure it. The Curve 3 came out and they flew that down to 550 feet. And as they saw the bow, they noticed it was upright, but as they went around the, the, uh, the stern section, which was broken uh, over 100 feet away, 
they noticed that the lettering was upside down and the Coast Guard investigators immediately thought the ROV or the robot was inverted. And they, the, the uh, pilot said, no, it's not. This is, this is the back section, 200 feet of the Edmund Fitzgerald that was upside down. So the horrible act of it tearing apart somewhere in the, the water column actually flipped the entire stern upside down and the bow section is resting proudly upright on the bottom where you can actually see every deck in the pilot house as well. And there the Fitzgerald sat, a gravesite for her 29 crew, none of which were ever recovered. Immediately there were questions on why this modern lake freighter sank, and these questions still brew today. Did she hit bottom? Did she get hit by a rogue wave? Or did her hatch covers cave in? Answers were hard to find as the wreck site was soon protected by the Canadian government at the request of the families of the victims. So very few people have actually seen the wreck. But in 1994, Rick did. In 94, we took the uh, submersible Delta, which had been famous for diving the Lusitania. And uh, we went down in this two-man yellow submarine and uh, I was the third dive on the uh, Delta expedition. When you dive a shipwreck, you get down to it, and if you're free diving it or you're doing it on scuba um, equipment where you don't have a submarine around you, you can actually go up to it and touch it. You know, the cold steel and the immense size of these vessels is what really becomes um, apparent to you. The Fitzgerald was surreal in the fact that I was down 500 feet. The light stopped at about 250, so it's pitch black beyond you know, whatever you have on board your submarine, which we had lots of lights. So it becomes very surreal. As you look through the porthole, you can see glimpses of the ship, but not the whole ship at the same time. So as we went past the name, the letters are, you know, over a foot and a half tall. I'm trying to remember exactly how big they were, but that's what first captured my, my, my mind was, it said Edmund Fitzgerald, and it was horribly torn up on the port side. So the collision with the bottom had just ripped apart the spar deck from the side of the ship. And the name had been scratched up and beat up so badly that it, it, it took my breath away. And as we went around the bow and to see the bow was actually bent almost 90 degrees, the, the force of the storm was just incredible. And then the tiny details, as you'd see a, a blanket hanging out of the pilot house, or you go up to the top and you'd see the, the radars that were, you know, Panasonic on top. The, the, it's a plastic, like just a little sliver of plastic ripped off and the wires were just there. So you, you start to piece together the story from that. Each one of those pieces not only awed me, but, you know, you, you were just so excited to see this great shipwreck. And then when I came up, we actually had uh, power left in the submarine. And so it was decided that the owner of the tugboat, who we were renting from, would, uh, would actually get to take his son down there for a, a look. And we were eating lunch, and we got a, a report from the submarine through the sonophone, the sound waves from the, it's like a radio that goes through water. And uh, we found out that they found a missing crewman. So we went from this incredible high of me just visiting the most famous shipwreck on the Great Lakes, the largest shipwreck on the Great Lakes at 550 feet down, to a horrible low of oh my God, there are 29 people that were lost there. You lose that connection, I think, because you're in the sub and you're safe. When you're diving, it's really apparent that, that these shipwrecks are, you know, this is a, a final grave because you have this water around you and you've got to be so careful when you're scuba diving to do that. I never lost that connection. But I think I did on the Fitzgerald because I felt so protected in the submarine but that immediately was erased when they found a first missing crewman, a body lying off of the bow of the shipwreck, wearing a life jacket. There's nothing more sobering than that. And instantly we were transported back to this is a grave site. The day after the wreck, the Mariner's Church in Detroit rang its bell 29 times for each of the crewmen lost. And this ceremony continues in Michigan today with the ship's actual bell, raised in 1995 and kept at Whitefish Point. But for the families of those lost on November 10, 1975, 
the Edmund Fitzgerald is more than just a song. It's a tragedy that will always be remembered. For Our American Stories, I'm Monty Montgomery. And great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery. A terrific job producing that piece. And a real special thanks to Rick Mixter, who, as you can tell, doing what he does is more than a vocation. It's his life. The story of the Edmund Fitzgerald here on Our American Stories. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.